Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the problem with debates is you're often force, uh, f forced into a position of potentially full, false opposition. Um, I think the most dangerous thing you can do is to attempt to predict the future. I certainly have no idea what that future is going to be. But I think what we can do is we can look at some of the forces that might impinge uh, and see if that gives us a guide. Now, I'm going to do this by asking a question that has puzzled me and others for some time, which is, why actually hasn't the journal changed more as a result of the internet? And I want to emphasize that this is not a defense of a non-technical status quo. There have been huge changes to the level of expectation that users and producers of information expect. One very good example are the tools that we see already being arrayed in, in journals in terms of um, cross-referencing and linking and uh, the, the work of uh, Crossref in, in making sure that there are seamless links between one article and another. And these have now been regarded as the norm. But I think it's still the case that the fundamentals seem remarkably unchanged. Now, the danger of uh, starting from this point rhetorically is that you get accused of having your head in the sand, which I assure you I don't, or worse, that somehow you're completely complacent about what's going on, and again, that's not the case. Or perhaps worst of all, that you're some kind of um, anti-technology Luddite and that you're not prepared to examine the way that the future can be changed by the application of technology. I'm not alone in posing this question. Um, many of you will have seen Michael Clark in his uh, piece in the Scholarly Kitchen of a couple of years ago, asking why publishing hadn't been disrupted more. And Joe Esposito, in, a, in an article that was in a, a celebratory volume celebrating the life of Gordon Graham in Logos, wrote about in publishing after the apocalypse that he saw part of the reason for a lack of change as being that there was some kind of Darwinian uh, exercise going on in terms of the way in which uh, the journal world was developing, and that it in fact punctuated equilibrium uh, which is one of the theories, uh, modern Darwinian theories, was what he felt was going on. That is to say that things change a great deal and then they calm down for a long period of stasis before they change again. And I'm going to pick up, I think, on some of those Darwinian arguments. And Jeff Builder, who I know is probably in the audience and, and certainly has spoken on this a lot, he likes to use the argument that the reason why we haven't seen as much change is because we're living in an age of digital incunabula. And that's an argument... I think I'd like to sort of explore a bit more. Now, the digital incunabular argument is that with the introduction of printing in 1450, that when you look at the works before 1450, the handwritten manuscripts that came out of the monastery world, and you look at the early printed books, the incunabuli uh, of that period, which have got printed material in them, but also have illumination, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of difference in terms of the form. And the argument would run that if we were to start looking, and this is one of Jeff's slides, if we were to start looking at the time scale between the introduction of printing and what we might see as, as, as real change having happened, that actually the time is a lot longer than in fact we've experienced since the introduction of the idea of the internet with Vannevar Bush uh, when he described his Memex machine. He'd argue that we're still in an age of digital incunabula and that, in fact, we have another 150-odd years to wait for the invention of the journal in 1665. Now, this may indeed be, I think, uh, a way of looking at it, but I'd argue, actually, that this leads us to something that perhaps has not been looked at 
quite as much as it should, which is that the real revolution was probably not, as we may think for readers, the introduction of printing, but probably the invention of the idea of the book with the introduction of the codex in AD 100. Now the codex comes about from having realized how awkward scrolls are to deal with. You have a long linear piece of text, you've got no way of getting into it. If you want to find something, you've got to go through the whole thing. The Romans had realized that for their own note keeping, they introduced wax tablets and these two ideas come together in the idea of splitting up the long scroll and turning it into a series of parts of a scroll, we call them pages, bound together in a little booklet. So what we have in the first revolution is that move from a single linear uh, text to a discrete set of pages. Scrolls, no pages, single volume, maybe many volumes in a work, each called a, a volumen, what we would think of as volume. But in the case of books, we're looking at random access, we're looking at chapters, paragraph, pages, and the ability to index and go directly to a particular point. And this is deeply embedded in our culture. And my first observation about why perhaps there's not been a huge amount of change is that pages and book structure are actually deeply embedded in our culture. And they're very reader friendly. And 2,000 years of human habit take quite a lot of uh, undoing. And we see some evidence for this when we actually look at the different file types and what proportion are downloaded and used when those options are available. And Certainly for the last few years, it has still been the case that the thing that resembles the page is still the most popular thing that gets downloaded. So pages and chapters and books matter to us a huge amount as users and as readers. But I want to move on to look at the Darwinian angle. Now, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the last century, there's a wonderful little book published by Darcy Thompson looking at the way in which animals grow and develop and the causes behind that. And I'd argue that actually we should be doing the same. We should be looking at the continuities and discontinuities in our own publishing world and trying to look at what is behind, uh, what causative factors lie behind that. This is the first page of the world's first scientific journal, Phil Trans of 1665. And this is a page of the same journal somewhat later. Now there are significant similarities between the two, but there are also significant differences. We go from virtually no article structure to something that's highly structured. And of course, in this case, it lends itself to being uh, put up in HTML form and being something one can navigate to. But the similarities are quite significant. And I'd argue that a lot of these are coming out of some of the fundamentals that have been discovered in the way in which uh, researchers behave. And as Cameron said earlier, they certainly behave in ways that uh, sometimes make you astonished that it's the same person in that they have an author mode, uh, a producer mode, if you like, and they have a consumer mode, a reader mode. And most of the studies that have been done really sum up the author mode as follows. There's a desire to be seen to report something first. This is particularly true in the empirical disciplines where someone else could find it. It's not so true in those areas where we're talking about subjective truths. But where there are actual things you could find out about the world, people are in a race to find them first. And they want to feel secure in communicating what they found because they don't want someone else to steal it. So the mechanism you introduce has to make them feel secure about that. In the case of the empirical disciplines, 
the author is wanting to persuade his readers that the results are not just something he did on a wet Wednesday, but they're something that actually applied generally for all time, and that they arise, at least in part, from some notional uh, enactment of the scientific method. And that is one of the reasons why we have the structure that we do in, in, in some scientific papers. They want to have their claim accepted by their peers. They want that idea to be reported, and they want it to be reported to the right audience, and they want to get recognition for it. And they also want it to be there on the permanent public record. These same people, when they're consuming information, want to be able to identify what's relevant to them out of the vast amount of material that's available. They want to be able to select it, and they want to be able to do that based on issues of trust and authority. They want to be able to locate it, and they want to be able to consume it, and when they write their own paper, they want to be able to cite it, and they want to make sure that what they produce and also what they cite is final and permanent. Now, the first person who realized that you could do all this through one mechanism was Henry Oldenburg. And he realized that actually, if you constructed a publication that obeyed certain fundamental principles, you could satisfy all of these constraints. His functions, the canonical functions of the journal, are about date stamping or priority via registration. They're about quality stamping or certification, and this is what we think of as happening through peer review. It's about recording the final definitive authorized version and archiving it for posterity. And it's about using the journal brand identity, which also Cameron mentioned earlier, to act as a form of dissemination to a particular targeted audience. There is another function that, of course, didn't really exist in Oldenburg's time, but which we've added largely because of the growth in the number of titles over the last 350 years. And that's the idea of for readers being able to search and find things. And all of these have been achieved through the creation and management of the journal brand, because it's that brand, that title and its associations that make all this work. What about the evidence for some of this? Um, this is from a couple of years ago. It's uh, from uh, the responses of just under 64,000 authors in Elsevier's author feedback program, which is where every single author publishing in their journals is asked to comment on that experience and to feed back what, what they liked and what they didn't like. And one of the main things they're asked are what are the eight most important things for you uh, publishing? And these are the eight factors for the entire sample set for that year. And you can see that they're put in a different rank order there. But if you analyze them and look at them carefully, you'll see that they actually boil down to two main things, which is quality and speed. Now, quality, of course, is about refereeing. It's about peer review. It's ultimately about certification. Speed is about priority, and priority is about registration. So we see these two functions very closely still allied in the modern world with a vast majority of authors publishing in the present day. Now, we could say, well, OK, this is all very well and good, but perhaps the introduction of the internet has caused change, huge change in these, these fundamental attitudes. Well, it isn't clear that that is the case. Um, in 1993, we could have said, I think, that we were in the very last year of the 100% print world. And a study was conducted then uh, by the Royal Society, British Library and Alps, which looked at what it was that motivated people to publish. Now, as Cameron said, you have to be very careful when you look at uh, the answers that academics give 
because they want to give the sort of mother herd and apple pie answer more than they want to give you the deeper reasons. And you can see that coming out here in the first and second motivations. Um, market researchers know that if you ask about the second motivation, you actually get much closer to some of the driving factors. And we can see them here in this chart that the driving factor in 1993 was furthering my career, future funding, recognition, and establishing precedence. Now, one would have expected online publication to have had some effect on this, I think. What we find is, astonishingly, that when we repeat this study later on, 12 years after the first World Wide Web journals are introduced, we find virtually no change in what motivates people. So, form is following function, and I would argue that function is following need. And at a fundamental level, researcher human needs have changed very little over time. So the functions remain constant, and we see this in the gross form remaining relatively stable. We can see that if we actually look at some examples. Here's something I downloaded last uh, week from PLOS One. You can see that the certification components are in there in the sense that you've got down at the bottom in the red box, you've got the date it was received, the date it was accepted through the peer review process, and the date it was published demonstrating both registration and certification. You see registration again in the title and the author's name as being very, very prominent, and the brand, PLOS One, appearing on that page. But we can go back to 1985 and look at exactly the same phenomenon in Nature, published on the 14th of November, and it was this paper that won uh, Harry Croto, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in that year. Um, and again, you see the title, the authors, and you see the peer review apparatus as described in the red box, the received date, and the accepted dates there. But we can go back even further again. We can go back to um, a paper of Mr. Isaac Newton about what happens when you put light through a prism. And again, you have again here exactly the same phenomenon. The idea of the identification of the title, the date it was published, what someone said in their own words, and also when it was sent in. So these things are really quite fundamental and they, they haven't really changed uh, a huge amount in the last three and a half centuries. We have relatively short articles, we have author names prominent, we have dates of submission, acceptance and publication present. We have the four functions being achieved simultaneously by an act of formal publication and they're branded by journal title. If we look at this in a little bit more detail, here's something I downloaded from Biomed Central last week, the Journal of Systems uh, Chemistry. And again, exactly the same elements are here. We have the registration in terms of the title and the author. We have the uh, peer review component and registration in terms of the dates of reception and uh, acceptance and final publication. We have navigation through the abstract navigation to the article, and we have navigation out from the article in terms of the reference list. And the whole article itself, of course, is the archive. So we have embedded in the way things look something that has evolved to deliver those needs, those human needs, that researchers had. Now, some people will argue, well, okay, that's fine and dandy, but my children are playing all the time on... Uh, on Xbox or whatever, and that therefore their world will be very different from ours. Well, we're now more than nearly 20 years into the World Wide Web. We've had at least one whole generation worth of um, academics experiencing this. And I'd argue that we have to be a bit careful here because we might be confusing the mass market 
with the scholarly market. And while the one clearly can influence the other, I think we have to accept that what people do in their professional lives is not always quite the same as what they do in their private lives. And certainly the studies that have been conducted to date where age has been looked at as a function as opposed to um, other aspects, it's not clear that young scholars are behaving differently. If anything, from the focus groups and other things that I've seen, they're more conservative than their older peers because they have to make their name. The Nobel Prize winner no longer needs to make his name. He can experiment as much as he wants. But the younger academic still needs to make his way in the world. We can think of this as being a bit like something you'd find in the King James Bible. You know, when I was a child, I spake as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. We all have to develop and change as we change in our careers, and we do different things because of the positions that we hold. So if we start to look at a second reason why there's been a lack of change, I would argue it's about the fundamental needs of researchers, and that these have been remarkably static, and that there's been very little change as a result of uh, digitization, much less in the fundamentals than perhaps in the more uh, superficial areas uh, that we identify with, those tools that we think are so, so important, and indeed they are. And that these needs are a bit like evolutionary selection pressure. They're the things that make animals occupy, like, they're like the things that make animals fit a particular um, evolutionary niche. And if those niches don't change, the animals don't change. There are new tools, but they serve old purposes. So we have lots and lots of new technology but it's still in the service of those human needs. Now, it could be argued, and indeed it should be, that, that we should, again, not to be complacent, we could have a world where something completely unexpected comes upon us, uh, the equivalent of the asteroid wiping out the dinosaurs. Now, I think we have to look at this with some care, because for there to be something completely novel and new to come in and affect us, it has to occupy a particular position within the world of uh, communication. And there's a, a type of, uh, a new type of study of information called information ecology. And one way of thinking about this is to look at the different dimensions by which you could classify a particular communicative act. So you could have the mode under which it happens. Is it one-to-one? -one? Is it one-to-many? Is it many-to-many? -many? The direction within which it happens. Is it one-person broadcasting or is it interactive? Um, is it happening live? or recorded? Is it oral or written? Is it private, public, formal or informal? Is it, is, can it be enhanced locally or will that enhancement only change it at a distance? And a good example is what's happening right now. I'm talking to you, my mode is one to many. Um, the directionality is currently at this precise moment unidirectional, but of course when you start asking questions later on it becomes bidirectional. It's oral, it's live, it's public, it's formal, and of course in a lecture hall there aren't any enhancements that we can have right now, but technology would allow us to enhance that in ways that allow action at a distance. You could broadcast it, but of course if it was a recorded broadcast you couldn't then ask questions very easily. You could webcast it, in which case you could indeed ask questions. But the fun fundamental point I'm making is that although these enhance the reach of the talk, it is still a talk. And if we start going through and thinking about how you could classify all the different modes of utterance according to whether they're oral or written, according to how many people you're interacting with, we can then look at the instances of this and look at how old technology had changed things. So for example, meeting somebody and talking to them one-to-one -one 
is enhanced by having a telephone allowing you to do it at a distance. A lecture, as I've just said, can be broadcast. When we turn to looking at how, say, digital technology changes this, we discover again it's a further enhancement. It is not a complete and fundamental change. There's very little that comes in that is completely novel. The only thing I can think of here is actually a wiki, which is many-to-many -many communication, which you can do in a written context. It would, of course, be somewhat difficult in a verbal context. I'm not sure we get a lot out of it if we all spoke at the same time. So here, I think, is a third reason why we haven't yet seen any change. There are only so many niches, and those niches are occupied by instances that have evolved and that are serving the needs that people want. And that when we have application of technology into those niches, what they do is increase their range and ability to satisfy the consumer and the producer. They don't actually completely change what's going on. As human beings, we can read, write, speak, listen, and what I should have put on here, of course, is show. We can show things, too. We don't have many more options, and the communication niches that we have reflect on that simple physical limitation that we have. So what about the future, then? Well, it seems to me that these forces are largely human forces, and as human forces, they haven't changed a lot. We can see that, the, that our predecessors were doing things in a similar way, although with much lower levels of technology and enhancement than we have, but they were still doing a lot of the fundamentals in somewhat the same way. And I'd argue that certainly if you were looking at the next five to ten years, it would be a reasonable betting man's assumption that you're not going to see huge and disruptive change, certainly coming out of these information functions. Whether or not the players remain the same, that seems to me to be perhaps a bit more of an open question, and that will depend upon how well they evolve to meet these functions that users and producers want to be satisfied. In the event that we did have the famous asteroid destroying everything, what would happen then? Well, I believe that these forces are so well, well embedded within the information requirements that if we had that complete destruction, we discover that these forces would slowly rebuild something that looks rather similar to what we have now, even though it might not be exactly the same. And the analogy uh, in uh, evolution can be seen, I think, very clearly. The human eye and the octopus eye look exactly the same, but they are not related in any shape or form. They are an example of parallel evolution. And I think that's really what we might see in the event of these form functions forming, uh, 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 impinging upon uh, this disastrous world that we're positing of the unexpected um, asteroid. So in terms of future change, I, I would argue that the formal scholarly system has evolved to satisfy a number of competing needs. The most important of these is actually the human needs of researchers for recognition and reward. It's also there to satisfy philosophical requirements for knowledge generation. It's there to make sure that others feel comfortable about what they're reading. And that comfort level is really rather important because otherwise you've wasted time. And it's evolved to fill the available information ecological niches. And because the needs are constant and the niches are relatively constant, what we're seeing is an enormously enhanced world through the application of technology. 
but not one in which the fundamentals have shifted uh, to the degree to which I think many would like to suggest that they have. There are new tools, but they're new tools for the same old purposes. Thank you very much.